Good Sunday morning, Northern Hills Bible Chapel. And all the people said, good morning, John, right? Good, morning, John. good Sunday morning to each of you. Good morning to any and all who might be tuning in. What a wonderful thing it is for us to be able to Zoom and connect when we're unable to do the best thing, gather together in person. We're so thankful for that opportunity to connect via Zoom as well. So all who are tuning in, uh, good morning to you also. Gentlemen, that was wonderful. That was wonderful. What an encouragement. What an encouragement. I loved it. And uh, thank you so much for that encouragement this very morning. Wish I could be with you and set my alarm for 7.15 for men's breakfast next week, but I will be home. Speaking of home, greetings from Katie and my children, our children, Anna Kate, who is 17, and Jonathan David, Johnny, who is 15. You need to know they wanted to be here. And I'm not just saying that. That's true. And they indeed look forward to the next time we, G-Force, if you will, can come and be with you all in person. But you also need to know they've been praying. Right now, Katie's praying. Kids might be praying as well, but I know Katie is for sure, praying for us as we have had the privilege to be together and we have the opportunity to open God's Word and finish this series together this morning. We have been considering since Friday night this concept, how to avoid spiritual frostbite in 2024. At this time of year, for some of us especially, it's not hard to understand and consider the reality of physical frostbite and the condition or symptoms of physical frostbite. Being cold, being numb, being desensitized, the loss of feeling. And we talked about that reality and considered even what might cause frostbite physically. But that concept is also reality for us spiritually. I've mentioned now on a couple of occasions when I was starting seminary in my orientation packet, I had a little brochure that said how to avoid spiritual frostbite in seminary. It was a great warning of the struggles we have in thinking of ourselves too highly, more highly than we ought. The struggle that comes with education, higher education and learning and the challenges we face in regards to pride, arrogance and ego. And so we began talking about that reality. How do we avoid spiritual frostbite, being numb, being desensitized, the loss of feeling in regards to who God is and what he would have for us? The inability to see what He wants us to see. The inability to hear what He wants us to hear. The inability to say what He wants us to say. And the inability to do what He wants us to do. We become numb. We become desensitized. We lose the, the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit and what our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, would have for us to be and do. And so how can we avoid this, this debilitating condition? How can we avoid this disease, spiritual frostbite? On Friday night, we looked at a case study together. We looked at a group of people, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, believers, Jewish believers who have come from a system of belief that was based upon doing to a system of belief now based upon 
faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the author of Hebrews would say is better. He's better. He's better. And the author of Hebrews said, verse 11 of chapter 5, concerning him, concerning our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say. We'd like to go on and on and on about who Jesus Christ is. I asked the question Friday night. You might remember me asking this question. Do you have much to say concerning Him, the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there much to say? Do we have much to say? There certainly is. And so the author of Hebrews says, I would love to say more, but there's a problem. There's a problem. It's hard for for us to explain because you have become spiritually frostbit. The text says you have become dull of hearing. You have become heavy in the ears. And for whatever reason, they were at a place, a point in their spiritual walk where they were stagnant, where they were not becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like this world. And so there's a warning that's given, a warning to grow and to become more and more like their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is better. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is better and less and less like this world. But they didn't want to hear it. They were dull of hearing. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to learn. They didn't want to grow. They had attitudes that were like this. We've heard it all before. There's nothing more to learn. We'd like to just stay in this condition and and do our thing and be comfortable. And the author of Hebrews brings this warning and says, you have neglected God-given time. We asked uh, the question, how will you spend your 1440? Considering the number of minutes in each given day, we're supposed to sleep for at least 480 of those minutes. And so less than 1,000 then would remain. How will we spend our time? I got a report on my, my phone this morning. The usage of my phone, sometimes it's encouraging and sometimes it's convicting. This week it was convicting. I was on the road a bunch, so I used it a bunch. How do we spend our time? And the author of Hebrews in our first case study says, you know what? You've wasted it. You've known the Lord for a period of time now where you ought to be able to teach the truth of God's Word. We again ask the question. I enjoy asking questions to get you to think. And we ask the question, how long have you known the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Before I leave today in just uh, 45 minutes or so, before I leave today, I'd love to know your number. What is your number in regards to how long you have known the Savior? I'm 55. I trusted Christ when I was approximately 8 years of age. So my number is 47. What is your number? How long have you known the Lord? And the author of Hebrews is saying this. As your 1440s, your day in and day out, go by. What are you doing with that time in regards to this book? He gives us a great illustration that captures my attention. He talks about food. And he says, you know what? Baby food is appropriate for babies only. But there's a problem. As time marches on, you have neglected the privilege to be a person of the book. And so you have to go back to Sunday school. 
Imagine if when the kids were dismissed, you went with them. And you sat in the little chairs and you listened to the teachers and you were taught the elementary principles of the oracles of God, the ABCs. Can you imagine being told that spiritually? You're old enough, you've known the Lord long enough to teach the Word of God. But because of the misuse of time, you have come to need milk and not solid food. He uses the illustration, the example of solid food as something that is for the mature. For the mature who are taking time, God's time that He grants us, and spending it in the Word. And so the rest of the section that we considered showed us three benefits of using God's time wisely and rightly dividing, handling accurately, cutting straight the Word of truth. When we do that, we can dine on the good stuff. Result number one, solid food. We can remember it says this. We can be accustomed to or at home with the word of righteousness. That's a result of using God's time wisely and being in his word. We dine on solid food. We're at home with the word of righteousness. And finally, the section concludes by saying what? We're able to distinguish because of practice and reason of use. We're able to tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Our senses are trained to tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. So when we use this book the way we are supposed to be, when we are in this book, when we are under it, which you are today, and when we are in it, which we need to be individually, when we use time wisely and we are students of the Word of God, we dine on solid food. We're at home with the Word of righteousness and we can tell the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Maybe you tuned in via Zoom on Friday night. Maybe you were here, but we had seven men, courageous men, come up and demonstrate this pattern by doing some motions. And they can teach you, but I'll remind you of of what they were. This pattern in the warning of Hebrews chapter 5, where we see spiritually frostbit people because they are heavy in the ears. Do you remember it? I'll do it with you. Time plus truth multiplied by practice, practice, practice equals spiritual maturity. We saw that pattern in Hebrews chapter 5. How can we avoid being spiritually frostbit? Time plus truth multiplied by practice, practice, practice equals spiritual maturity. We considered that on Friday night. Yesterday, we looked at another case study. We began that case study by looking at these simple words. We even addressed these on Friday night. In the year of King Uzziah's death. In the year of King Uzziah's death. And then we took time together to slowly go through the life and times of King Uzziah. Triumph, the first half of the chapter. And tragedy, the second half of the chapter. The children of Israel, since Solomon, did not have a king like Solomon until King Uzziah. The successes, the reality of prosperity, the reality reality of God's blessing was all over the nation as their king, 
did what was right. As their king continued the pattern of trusting, of following, of obeying our great God. It was striking, wasn't it, to be reminded of the names of King Uzziah and what they mean and represent. His royal throne name is Uzziah. His personal name uh, indeed was Azariah. And those names convey these truths. Yahweh, or God is strong, Yahweh helps. Yahweh has helped. And we see in his life that pattern. Verse 15 of Second Chronicles chapter 26 says this, He was marvelously helped by God until he was strong. And we see his demise, the tragedy in the latter half of the chapter where he forgot the reality of dependence upon the one who is strong and the one who helps that he is our adequacy and he is our sufficiency. And he was so strong that in his heart he became consumed with pride not understanding accurately who he is and where he fits in God's plan, purpose, and program. He viewed himself incorrectly, and as a result, he acted corruptly, and he was unfaithful, and he did something he was never supposed to do. Longing to be priest-like and thinking he could do whatever he wanted, he entered into a place, a holy place, where he should never have entered. And 81 people tried to bring him to his senses. I asked the question, what does it take? What did it take? What will it take for you to come to your senses and surrender all? He had the opportunity to repent right there and then, and he did not. Because he was so full of pride that he was enraged with them for attempting to get him to do otherwise. And he raised this scepter in his hand and he was struck with leprosy. He knew it and the other 81 people knew it and they all fled out of the temple and he was kept in isolation the rest of his life. And he died with the legacy of these words. He was a leper. Pride, arrogance, and ego. We looked as we closed last night at the words in 1 Peter chapter 5 that we need to humble ourselves before our great God and He will indeed lift us up. We're encouraged to cast uh, our every care upon Him for He cares for us. For we are His charge. And He is mighty and He is strong and He will help us. Isaiah chapter 6 this morning for our consideration. We're going to see from the prophet Isaiah in just 10 verses or so, three prescriptions, three prescriptions that can again help us to avoid being spiritually frostbit. How can we avoid being like King Uzziah? How can we avoid being like those in Hebrews chapter 5 that were dull of hearing? How can we be like those who who hear and don't understand, who see and don't get it, who in their minds and hearts don't understand and perceive. We'll see that described for us in this passage. How can we avoid being spiritually frostbitten? I trust you realize by now it was intentional. Of course, this is the inspired Word of God. But there's a reason why 
Isaiah begins this chapter, chapter 6 of Isaiah begins with a date. It begins with a recognition of what just happened and occurred because the children of Israel have been accustomed to the reality of God's incredible blessing based upon a king who led them according to God's ways and continued to follow him and was helped by Yahweh because Yahweh indeed is strong. Never again would it be like it was in the days of King Uzziah like it was when Solomon ruled and reigned. And so it's a great reminder for us to understand what they were experiencing, what they have not so long ago just uh, gone through, and how they are wondering, how, how, how are we going to move forward? And who is going to rule and reign? And will, will it ever be like the way it used to be? And we know the rest of the story and that it wasn't. And it's at this time that Isaiah receives this vision of the glory of God. It's a vision that I know you've seen before, but I trust as we consider it anew and afresh this very morning, uh, that we see it in a different light, that we understand the significance of this particular vision and indeed how we ought to respond to it. There are at least three things that I'd love for us to see together this morning that ought to change the way we think and live and will help us avoid spiritual frostbite. We see in this vision uh, the glory of God and, and in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 38 and following, we're told by John that what Isaiah saw indeed is the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we see this divine revelation. We see this vision of our great God and of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure, but it's interesting to consider that the one who who recorded, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I wonder if he connected the dots in this vision. As John tells us, it is of the Son, the Lord Jesus. Is this a vision of God? How many have always thought it's a vision of God? Is this a vision of the Lord Jesus? How many always thought it was a vision of the Lord Jesus? Is this a vision of both of them? Anybody comfortable landing there? I surely am. And I don't think we need to split hairs. I can't. But I don't think we need to split hairs in regards to um, whether this is a vision of God or whether this is a vision of the Lord Jesus. It's a divine revelation and it's a vision of their glory. They're the same in essence, in, but in de- indeed different in subsistence. And Isaiah receives this vision not to determine which it is. I just wanted to get you thinking about that because it's important to consider, but rather to consider what indeed he did see. He did see. And so in order to uh, avoid spiritual frostbite, uh, number one, prescription number one is this, that we need to view God and His Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly. We need to view God and His Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly. And I want you to imagine you receive this vision. Listen to the words. Picture it in your mind's eye. Uh, I love how the Word of God encourages us to use our senses. And that's uh, the privilege we have this morning. Not just to think with our minds, but to picture what Isaiah indeed saw. Let's consider it together. We're going to get a little further than in the year of King Uzziah's death. 
Here's the vision. Will you picture it with me? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. We're entering this throne room scene. We know, as the author of Hebrew tells us in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, we have access into this place called the throne of, uh, the, the throne of grace. We have access to the throne of grace where we are promised to receive what? Mercy, grace, and help right when we need it, in time of need. And so we, we get a glimpse of uh, this splendor, this majesty, this holiness. Let me ask you this question. When you view God in your mind's eye, when you boldly approach the throne of grace, do you think of anything? Do you picture anything? I really appreciated um, my dad's teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, some of you have heard that before. It's, uh, it's found succinctly in his book, Walking with Jesus, uh, how practical the Lord's Prayer is. The Lord's Prayer where the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, teaches us, the children, how to talk to the Father. And in the Lord's Prayer, one of the things that we just cruise right by is the address. How does it start? What's the address? Our Father. That's who we're talking to. Who art in heaven. That's where He is and we are fully aware of His omni-attributes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. What does Jesus teach us, God's children, in regards to how we ought to talk to the Father? What does He start with? He starts with this vision. He starts with worship. He starts with adoration. He starts with us recognizing who indeed it is we are talking to, where He is, and who He is, and what He is like. Let me ask you this. Does that happen when you pray? On the regular, on the daily, when you pray, whether with your children or individually on your own, do you take the time to think about the address? Do you begin the approach with worship and adoration, recognizing who He is and what He is like? And that is the one we have the privilege, because of Jesus, to boldly approach. What do you picture when you boldly approach? It's a great opportunity for us to think about it, and this vision helps us to do so. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Picture this, if you will, with me this very morning. With the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim. Seraphim, by definition, are burning ones. Burning ones. These agents, messengers, divine, angelic, angels, messengers of cleansing. They had a, a clear-cut job description. They were six-winged creatures with two wings. They would cover their feet, some would say, and I think appropriately so, in regards to consecration and the holiness that they were to, to declare, and that was viewed here. With two wings, they flew the ability to move about and declare what they not because they stuttered and not because they just wanted to repeat, but because they wanted to 
emphasize the overriding and overarching attribute of our great God? When you think of Him, do you think of Him that way? Holy, holy, holy. Is that what you picture? Is that what you view? These six-winged creatures with two they covered their face, not, not able to look upon uh, the one that they were declaring holy, holy, holy. Seraphim, verse 2, stood above Him, each having six wings. Can you picture it? They're above Him in this particular vision. With their faces covered and their feet covered and they are flying and they're crying out to one another. Can you imagine this, uh, this statement in harmony, one after another crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. There's an author named Ortland who has written on the book of Isaiah, and I just want to read you uh, a portion of what he says. His holiness, talking about our great God, the glory that is seen here, His holiness is simply His Godness in all His attributes, listen to this, in all His attributes, works, and ways. He is not like us, only bigger and nicer. He is in a different category altogether. How can we, how can we avoid being spiritually frostbitten in all that that concept uh, indeed entails? Isaiah gives us a prescription here, which is simply this, to view God correctly and His Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly. Isaiah saw God as absolutely upright, correct, and true. His glory was not restricted to the throne room or to heaven, however, but it filled the whole earth. God's glory fills the earth in that the revelation of God's attributes fills the earth. God's glory refers to the outshining of His person. Do we view God that way? And if so, why not? I would suggest to you that we have lost this gaze and perspective. We have lost reverence. We have lost awe. We have lost godly fear. And we desperately need to return to it. Isaiah receives this vision at a crucial time where God's chosen people, Israel, have lost a significant leader. And they needed to be reminded, as Isaiah needed to be reminded as well, in this commissioning of his ministry, that God is holy, holy, holy. And one called out to another, verse 3, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's what he saw. And let's consider indeed in verse 4 what he heard. Senses being used. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine this trembling occurring 
as the holiness of our great God and, and the glory of our great God is seen and made manifest. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. He used his eyes and he saw. He used his ears and he heard. Perhaps he could smell the smoke that was filling in the temple. This vision intentionally was given at a very specific time for Isaiah and God's people, of uh, uh, chosen people Israel, and for us by way of practical value and use to be reminded of what our God is like. If we want to avoid spiritual frostbite, we need to view God correctly and His Son correctly. Let me ask you this question. When you view God correctly and His Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly, when we catch this glimpse of majesty and awesomeness and splendor and glory and awe, what is your reaction? And I'm not asking you to say, I know what it says next. I know the reaction. I'm asking you personally, what is your reaction when you view God this way? Many would suggest, and I think rightfully so, that when we view God correctly, we then are able to view ourselves correctly. Isaiah has a response here. And you know what he says? I'm ruined. I'm undone. It's literally the idea of the expression that we use, I'm, I'm falling apart at the seams. He says, notice in verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I'm undone. I'm falling apart at the seams because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. You know why that's the case? Because my eyes have seen the King, the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe are we. Isaiah makes a declaration And says the very thing that I am supposed to use for God. I'm a prophet. I'm the mouthpiece of God. Is unclean. I live among a people of unclean lips. And I am a man of unclean lips. Why did he say that about himself? And about God's chosen people Israel? Because he viewed God correctly. He saw the correct representation of His holiness, righteousness, splendor, and majesty. And when He saw God correctly, then and only then could He view Himself correctly. When we view God incorrectly, we then view ourselves incorrectly. And I would suggest to you that's a real struggle for us today. Let me ask you a, a question about sin. Do you view sin the way God views sin? I mean, seriously. When we consider sin and God's view of sin, do we view it the same way? May I honestly and sincerely say to you that 
we are in trouble because we have become too comfortable and casual in regards to the subject matter of sin. I struggle with this reality. I struggle and help me understand, please. I'm 55. This will sound older than 55. But I struggle so much understanding how we can be so consumed by social media platforms that at their very core is a desire to own souls. How is it? I'm asking sincerely. How is it that we can be so casual and comfortable with being exposed to vulgarity, corruption, immorality, pornography at the core of most of these sites that your children and perhaps you are consumed with? Do you monitor? Do you watch? Do you regulate? Do you know? These platforms are used by evil, wicked, sinful people to capture literally and figuratively souls. And we are so casual and comfortable with the sin that is so readily available. Even when you're looking up something legitimate, Think about all that pops up. And I know there's great filters out there, and I hope you have some. But I also know the games we play in justifying these things. You see, when we view God correctly, we also then view ourselves correctly. It's the second prescription that that Isaiah offers. How do we avoid being spiritually frostbit? We need to view God correctly and His Son correctly. And as a result, as a direct result in correlation, we need to view ourselves correctly. Isaiah said, I'm in trouble. Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm falling apart at the seams. There was a man who influenced me very positively over the years. He served for decades at a camp in Colorado and then came and served at Emmaus Bible College in the the correspondence school especially, but also in the day school, uh, the college. That's an old school expression. Um, uh, but this brother's name was Paul Sapp. Paul Sapp, let me just tell you, was a giant of a man. Served at Camp Elam and, and Lake Geneva Youth Camp, actually, and, and Emmaus Bible College, the correspondence school, as I stated. He was easily 6'4", six, 6'5". And he weighed easily 300, 325. I mean, he was a mountain of a man. And yet he had this voice that was so gentle and high-pitched. And he used to say to many people, and he would say it to me, and I'm, I'm so grateful that he did. He used to say, Jonathan! I won't do that again. <laughs> so just imagine the rest of this in a high-pitched voice. He used to say, Jonathan, I want to encourage you to pray this way. And he prayed this way. And he encouraged me to pray this way. And if you're not tracking at all today, that's okay. But here's a phrase that maybe you'll consider and purpose to pray every day. He said, Jonathan, pray this way. Ask God to help you to hate sin and love him more. Ask God to help you to hate sin and love him more. 
I'm not sure why we don't hate sin as we ought to. I'm not sure why we don't view sin the same way God views sin. I'm not sure why we don't hate sin the way God hates sin, but we need to. We need a generation of young people. We need a generation of moms and dads and grandparents who will call sin, sin, and purpose to hate it and love God more. And when we view God correctly in all His glory, majesty, splendor, and awesomeness, that is when we view ourselves correctly and make this declaration of woe. This declaration of woe. But watch what happens next. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How do we avoid spiritual frostbite in 2024? We need to view God correctly and His Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly. We need to view ourselves correctly. And we need to view and never lose sight of it. Salvation correctly. Cleansing and forgiveness that ultimately comes through the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. Picture this, if you will. Then one of the seraphim flew to me. He has just made a declaration of woe, and he has said, I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and then this six-winged creature and this divine vision of God's glory flies to him with a burning coal in his hand. Remember, that's who they are. They're burning ones. They're agents of cleansing. That's their job to purify and to declare the holiness and righteousness of our great God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which, had take, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. The very thing that Isaiah was going to use for God. The very thing that he previously just said is unclean. He acknowledged, he confessed, he recognized his sinfulness when he saw God's holiness. And he said, confessing and acknowledging, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then this angelic messenger flies to him and with a burning coal touches his lips. Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. I referenced Ortland just moments ago. Listen to what he, he says in regards to this particular scene. A seraph peels off from his flight path around the throne, diving straight for Isaiah. Can you picture it? He's holding a burning coal that he took from the altar with tongs. Not because it is hot. After all, a seraph himself is a burning one. He took this coal with tongs because it is a holy thing. It belongs to the place of sacrifice and atonement and forgiveness. But this holy thing touches Isaiah's dirty mouth. And it does not hurt him but rather it heals him. What we must see in the context of the whole Bible is that this burning coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. If we are going to avoid spiritual frostbite in 2024, we need to view God correctly. 
holy, holy, holy. We need to view ourselves correctly. Woe are we. And we need to view salvation correctly. What is your response in regards to these words? Behold, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Do you remember the day? My number is 47. The day that I put the pieces of God's plan of salvation together and recognized that He is holy and recognized that I am not, acknowledging that I'm a sinner and realizing that He provided a way, one way, through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that I might have my sins forgiven and my eternity secured because of what Christ did for me. What is your reaction when you're reminded of the reality of cleansing? When you're reminded of the reality of forgiveness? When you're reminded of the reality that your iniquity is taken away? I think it's so ironic and wonderful to recognize that when we gather together on a Sunday morning, to take the bread and to take the cup, we are doing exactly what we see in this text. We are viewing God correctly and His Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly. We, as a result, are viewing ourselves correctly, recognizing who we were without, who we are because of, and what we have to look forward to. And we view correctly His finished work of body given and blood shed. We reset each week with these prescriptions. Viewing God correctly. Viewing ourselves correctly. And viewing salvation correctly. It helps us to avoid spiritual frostbite. William MacDonald wrote a variety of books. One entitled, My Heart, My Life, My All. And in it, He suggests that we live in a dry-eyed Christianity. He suggests that we are spiritually frostbit. That we are not moved. That we spiritually are lacking a pulse. And I would suggest to you it's because we lose sight of these three things. Viewing God correctly ourselves correctly, and the finished work of Christ correctly, which brings us cleansing and forgiveness. What is your natural response to viewing all these three things correctly? What is the response? It's interesting what we see in verses 8 and following. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, here's the question. Anybody out there? Here's what He says. I hear the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And I love the nod to the Trinity. And who will go for us? By the way, there's a great summary of this passage. Woe, low, and go. Low instead of behold in verse 7. A great way to remember it. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah didn't pause, did he? Isaiah didn't say, you know what, I've got to think about this. 
Because Isaiah saw God correctly in all His glory, splendor, and majesty. And he saw himself correctly and said, I am ruined, undone, falling apart at the seams. And yet there's this cleansing and forgiveness that he saw correctly as well. And as a result, he says this, I'm in. I'm all in. Here am I. Send me. I'll go. What is your response? What is your response to this threefold perspective of God, ourselves, and salvation? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Listen to what, what we find in this section. Here God tells Isaiah that he's going to be dealing with frostbit people. Listen to what he says. He said, go and tell this people who keep on listening. You know people like that? Spiritually frostbit, they're hearing the truth, but the truth is not penetrating their minds and hearts. Who keep on listening, but do not perceive. Who keep on looking, but do not understand. And then verse 10, a spiritually frostbit description. Render the hearts of this people insensitive. Their ears dull and their eyes dim. Isaiah is all in. He makes a response and said, here I am, send me. And he's told, here's the kind of people you're going to be dealing with. But here's the wonderful reality of what is available. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Have you responded in that way? Being able to see, being able to hear, being able to understand, and coming to the point and place where you are healed through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My wife and I have spent some time together in this passage, and we have a, a threefold summary of our response to viewing God correctly, ourselves correctly, and salvation correctly. It's in correspondence with the text, no doubt. But it's these three words. Whenever, wherever, whatever. We are all in. How about you? We were watching some football in our household and there was a commercial that said this. Anytime, anywhere, anything. And I looked at Kate and I said, Kate, that's just like our response to Isaiah. Whenever, wherever, whatever. Anytime, anywhere, anything. You see, the natural response to viewing God correctly and ourselves correctly and salvation correctly is a life that says, I will no longer live for myself, but for the one who died for me and rose again. I will no longer live for myself, but rather for the one who died for me and rose again. Isaiah says, here I am. Let's go. Is that your response as well? Father, help us to see and help us to hear and help us to understand and help us to respond. Father, we understand what it's like to be spiritually frostbitten. We can relate to symptoms and circumstances that cause us to be that way. And so we ask that you would help us to not lose sight of who you are.
holy, 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 majestic in your splendor, glory, and majesty. Father, help us to view yourself correctly and your Son, the Lord Jesus, correctly. And as a result, may we view ourselves correctly also, recognizing how we pale in comparison, recognizing that we are undone and ruined because of our sin. But may we also view correctly, Father, this plan of salvation that came together in the Son who was given, in the child who was born, in the eternally existent Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh and blood and these two natures were united together forever in the person of the God-man, fully God, fully man, yet without sin. May we recognize that in and through Christ our lives can be changed, our iniquities forgiven, and cleansing to occur. For those of us who have experienced that, may we anew and afresh say we're all in. Whenever, anytime, wherever, anywhere, whatever, anything, we're all in. May we respond in like manner uh, as your Son, the Lord Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Galatians 2.20 reminds us that He loved us and gave Himself for us. May that be our response and reply. May we willingly, may it be our reasonable act of service that we would surrender all and make a declaration that no longer are we going to live for ourselves, but rather for the One who died for us and rose again. Help us, Father, to take these prescriptions on the daily when we gather together on the first day of the week, but also each and every day. Help us to view God correctly, Yourself and Your Son, the Lord Jesus. Ourselves correctly. We're inadequate, we're insufficient in and of ourselves. And salvation correctly. And may we reply by saying, we are all in. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Amen.